1: You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm the
0: digitally de-aged version of Wade Bearden. And I'm the digitally de-aged version of Kevin McLenathan. I have to say, Wade, I think we look pretty good.
1: We look very good, Kevin. In fact, we've just been recruited for the new version of 21 Jump Street.
0: Now that my decrepit adult face is a thing of the past, I'm ready to jump back into high school, Wade. On today's episode of Seeing and Believing, we review
1: the new film from Martin Scorsese, The Irishman.
0: We also revisit the filmmaker Trey Edward Schultz with his new film that just came out, The family drama waves. It's crime, relationships, and people attending church
1: on this episode, episode 228 of Seeing and Believing. Let me put McGee on the phone.
2: Hello? Hi, my friend. How are you? Listen, I got that kid I was talking to you about here. I'm going to put him on the phone and let you talk to him, okay? Hello? Is that Frank? Yes. Hiya, Frank. This is Jimmy Hoffa. Yeah, yeah. Glad to meet you. Well, glad to meet you, too. Even if it's over the phone. I heard you paint houses. Yes, yes, sir. I, I do. I do. And I uh, I also do my own carpentry. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. I understand you're a brother of mine. Yes, sir. Local 107, since 1947. yeah. You know, uh, our friend speaks very highly of you. Thank you. He's not an easy man to please. Well, I do my best.
1: That is a clip from Martin Scorsese's The Irishman. We're going to jump into that film here in a bit. Kevin, I'm looking forward to this episode. We've got some prestige pictures that we're going to be talking about. And I mentioned it earlier as we were going through the introduction. But in both of these pictures... People, characters, attend church, and there are some meaningful moments in a Sunday service. So this is a great episode. For listeners to be tuning in to Seeing and Believing, because we're going to try to unpack that and kind of see where that leads us here in our discussion.
0: I do have to wonder, though, Wade, since we are talking about the Irishman first here, have you brushed up on any of your gangster stereotypes? Have you been perfecting your Goomba slang or (laughs) your, you know, your pasta knowledge? Uh, Not really, um,
1: but I can, I can try to do it. I can talk like this if I need to.
0: That's absolutely horrible, but yeah. we're working at could it. It could be worse. <laughs> yeah. It could be worse. You could have listened to my own interpretation of that. So we'll, we'll, we'll go
1: with yours. It could be worse is the mantra of my life. Listeners, <laughs> this week's episode of Seeing and Believing begins with a look at what just might be Netflix's biggest release to date, The Irishman. Here's the film's official synopsis. Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, and Joe Pesci star in Martin Scorsese's The Irishman, an epic saga of organized crime in post-war America told through the eyes of World War II veteran Frank Sheeran, a hustler and hitman who worked alongside some of the most notorious figures of the 20th century. Spanning decades, the film chronicles one of the greatest unsolved mysteries in American history the disappearance of legendary union boss Jimmy Hoffa, and offers a monumental journey through the hidden corridors of organized crime, its inner workings, rivalries, and connections to mainstream politics. Kevin, the Irishman's three-and-a-half-hour runtime notwithstanding, there's a good deal to talk about when we talk about this film. I would, however, like to know just kind of generally where you land with Scorsese's newest release. Some are saying this is his best movie since the 2006 Oscar winning The Departed. What do you
0: think? That's exactly what I would say, actually. That I was going to lead with that right out of the gate. So I'm glad that you, uh, <laughs> teed me up for that. That go. was really good. Um, I really think this is a great film and, uh, cards on the table. I'll actually say, you know, when when people think of the great Scorsese movies, Goodfellas is often at the top of the list. It's just so propulsive, and the style is just so overwhelming, and there's so many memorable moments. But for me, Goodfellas, I appreciated it, but I never really loved it. And part of the reason was because it was so seductive with all that flashy style that it did feel a little bit to me like... While it was critiquing the gangster lifestyle, the propulsiveness of the filmmaking tended to overwhelm that critique a little bit and neutralize it somewhat. So I was really happy when I finished The Irishman because I feel like this is kind of the movie that I always wanted Goodfellas to be. A movie that was still very much steeped in a very particular kind of... Uh, American lore had had a lot of appreciation and attention paid to the idiosyncratic rituals and subcultural trademarks of gangsters and kind of that that whole world and setting while not trying to gloss over the fact that it's not really glamorous to be a gangster it's it it's fun for the characters but it's not actually a great thing, and I think that The Irishman, for me, really get got that right. I would actually probably say I like it better than Goodfellas, and I would definitely agree that it's Scorsese's strongest film since The Departed, maybe even earlier than that. I'm not sure, but it's a very strong film, and I'm really glad that I saw it. Uh I could probably watch it again. It's it's one of those movies that is a great example of what Ebert always said, that that no good movie is too long and no bad movie is short enough. I think this is a very good movie. It's three and a half hours long, and I would watch it again in a heartbeat. It's, it's that good.
1: Yeah, I mean, I like this better than The Departed and even many films before. That, I mean, we start, we start kind of working our way backwards to age of innocence and, and good fellas. I, I don't know. I'm thinking I might like this more than, than silence. And I like silence a lot. We talked about that a couple years ago. I think I do. And this is just, I, I, it's a fantastic picture. And I, I, I think people have kind of balked at the three and a half hour runtime. I didn't really feel it, Kevin. I was engaged. From beginning to end. And I never felt bored. I felt like the characters had an opportunity to grow old with this picture. And I think the runtime is a part of that. So we can probably get into that later as we talk about just, just time, time and memory. Uh, They are, they are primary characters here in this movie. And I'm, I'm more sympathetic to Goodfellas than you. I think that it does it does communicate the glamour of that lifestyle but then it all kind of crumbles to the ground i think in this picture it introduces us to someone who is not at the top of that world they're fairly they're fairly high up but not at the top and so their their excess or the perks aren't as as big and as large As as it would probably be for most people in this world, Um, and we don't we don't get a character sort of dying this this martyr death at the end of the film. It it does open with Robert De Niro as an old man talking to the camera. Uh, What we get is is the hero who just slowly wastes away. And there's there's you know there's so much there in this picture, and I. Thought it was fantastic. And I, like you said, Kevin, I would love to take some time and go through this movie again because it really is fantastic. And I, I went back and watched clips and there's just so many nuances that I don't know. I just feel like I've got to watch this a number of times before I catch everything because it's, it's just that rich. I don't want to say packed because that feels like there's just too much. Uh, it's, it's rich.
0: Rich is a good way to describe it, and I feel like we we need to make something clear right off the bat that this character Frank Sheeran he is the main character, but he he isn't he really isn't a hero. Um, and I I like that that is so crystal clear from the beginning, and this touches on something that I think is one of the films most standout strong points is De Niro's performance is his best performance I've I've seen out of him in years he's so good in this film and he what part of what makes it so good is that he explores a part of his range that I feel like gets lost a little bit you know when we think of De Niro we think of kind of like the the impassive tough guy in like Michael Mann's heat or in in Goodfellas, or we think of him as kind of this real, this unpredictable force of nature like in raging bowler and taxi driver. He's just got this there's this huge, larger life persona. He just seems so formidable and imposing in so many of his roles. In the Irishman though, he's essentially playing a two bit mob thug. He's you know he's not a particularly smart individual. He's not. There's nothing all that special about him. The only thing that's really noteworthy about him, at least that we see in this film, is that he's willing to basically do whatever Joe Pesci's Russell buffalino tells him to do. So if he if he gets told to you know shoot a guy in the face, he'll go do it, and no questions asked. If he's told to uh, steal a whole bunch of stakes he'll do that. You know, he's just kind of a guy who does what he's told and doesn't really think too hard about any of it. He just appreciates the money and the respect that he gets for being this this thug and doing all of the dirty work. And De Niro plays him as kind of this almost inarticulate guy who isn't quite, he, he's almost adrift in this life. He's not like the the character, uh, Ray Liotta's character in Goodfellas, who's just enchanted with the gangster lifestyle and is determined to, you know, get to the top and really enjoy it to the full. Frank Sharon seems a lot more like the sort of character who just kind of goes along with the flow and he just happens to get caught up in the flow of the gangster life and he just goes with it because it feels comfortable to him, at least in the moment. And De Niro's got kind of this this almost hunched, slumped, deferential uh, mannerism that he brings to so many of his scenes, especially a linchpin scene where he has to make a phone call where he gives another character some really, or where, where he doesn't really give another character bad news, but he has to comfort a character who's received some very bad news and his performance in that scene is it it, first of all it's heartbreaking but it's also he he's just he almost can't get an entire sentence out because he he literally doesn't know what to say and he's not the sort of man who would ever know what to say in a situation like that he's just kind of a a regular guy who also happens to be a thug and it's it's just it's a great performance and i really like the way that scorsese signals that we're in the presence of master from the very beginning where he the very first scene he takes us down the hallway of this nursing home while de niro's character is sort of beginning his story in voiceover and then the camera settles in front of de niro sitting in his chair and then de niro kind of begins addressing the camera directly and from that moment Scorsese says this is the guy you're going to pay attention to and he's essentially going to give you his confession and it's just it's brilliant i love yeah, it yeah and you mentioned the tracking shot at the
1: very beginning the film is bookended by two similar tracking shots and you could almost compare that to the famous copa cabana shot in goodfellas that this sort of glamorous tracking shot but here it's the opposite effect It's a very sad, somber, lonely tracking shot that seems to say, hey, this is where a life lived by Frank ends. This is how it goes. And you said something really well there. You you said flow. He goes with the flow. You know, Scorsese, he doesn't make it a point to tell us the date when we move forward or backward in time. And so we'll be kind of watching the film and realize, oh, you know, We just jumped five years into the future, or ten years into the future. The years really kind of fall away like petals on a flower, and it's almost unnoticeable at first. And then we realize the characters have grown old. They continue to get older. They're hurtling towards death. Time, near the end of their lives, uh, in the film, it speeds up. And so we're jumping very quickly. It's as if things are finally catching up. Time is finally catching up. It's slipping away from them. And Frank doesn't live a good life, but he lives a life that's packed. He's always going here or going there or running errands. He doesn't have time for his family. And so life is just kind of passing by. And so that effect of just not really letting us know, just kind of giving us cues. Here's what year it is. Uh, Here's kind of where they're at. Look at their faces. We get the sense that Frank doesn't have a handle on his own life. And then when he does have time to reflect on it, it's too late. He's an old individual. He's hurt the people around him and life has, has fallen apart. And I, I think that's just such a powerful move on Scorsese's part because that's, that's what can happen in life where we just get so busy and we get so distracted and we wake up and we say, wow, where, you know, where did the time go? I think that's how the runtime in this movie kind of really just fills out the story and talks about this life and thematically tells us what Scorsese wants to tell us about this kind of life.
0: It, that's one reason why I don't really have a lot of of sympathy for criticisms that accuse it of being too long or being too boring. Because, I mean, it is true, this this film is very deliberate and it does take its time, but it's not because Scorsese is being self-indulgent here. He's not, it's not like he's shot all this footage and all of them are his precious babies. And he just doesn't want to cut any of it. He's got this very long three and a half movie put together and set in front of us on purpose because he wants us to feel the weight of accumulated years on Frank Sheeran and the people around him. So as you know, As we enter into Hour 3, by this point, not only do we kind of feel like we know this world around him almost as well as Frank does, we also feel the weight of time that's been spent in that world. So when he's sitting in that nursing home kind of looking back with regret on some of the things that he's done— the weight that he's bearing is also a little bit the weight that the audience is bearing. And that's just so powerful. And it's something that could not have been achieved, which with a much fleeter two-hour film. In fact, if he had kind of made this, this peppier, more light on its feet two-hour film, then his detractors would be correct in sort of accusing him of remaking Goodfellas yet again. You know, like, oh, it's Scorsese's made yet another gangster picture. But this film is sort of it's built on top of those other films and it represents a really strong progression. It's essentially Scorsese looking back on his own body of work, the weight of his own accumulated years, and almost interrogating the choices that he made in making these earlier films. You mentioned that early tracking shot reminding you of the Copacabana tracking shot from Goodfellas. It really reminded me a lot of the opening of Mean Streets, where there's kind of this Um, you know, we see Harvey Keitel's character wake up and then it cuts to these super eight films that are like the family movies playing in Keitel's character's head. And, you know, there's this classic rock playing on the soundtrack in both mean streets and in the Irishman. And the overall effect is Scorsese is trying to evoke nostalgia or the idea that there's kind of this innocence that was once had that we are going to be watch. we're, We're going to watch it be lost over the course of the film in front of us. In Mean Streets, it's kind of, it, it's, it's heartwarming almost. In The Irishman, it's it's that, it's nostalgic, but it is also deeply sad because we will come to know just what De Niro's character is feeling nostalgic for. And... It, that's a it, it's a very tragic sort of life to look back on with nostalgia or without nostalgia. Yeah,
1: and you're really kind of getting at something that I, I've just thought about as I've reflected on this movie. And it's just how masterful Scorsese is as a filmmaker. He does these things that you just. Oh, I mean, it's it feels simple, but yet the accumulation of all of it is just. I mean, it just sends this, this picture of the moon. There's this sequence where Robert De Niro, uh, talks about how when he kills someone, he has to go to a bridge and he throws, he throws a, the gun into the water so it will never be found. And we do get a couple of times uh, where we see him killing individuals, but there's this great sequence where it just, it's this all these cuts of him at different times throwing guns into the water over and over again and the way that montage is kind of put together is just this fantastic approach to letting us know about his character and about the jobs that he asks us to do and I think in in any other hands it would just be like all this blood and guts and we're you know getting shot here and there and there but it's so effective in telling us about De Niro's character and the people he killed in an Economical uh, way. They're-
0: oh yeah, and 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 then like the the punchline to that entire sequence <laughs> is we go down below the surface of the water and we see all of the guns that have been tossed into the river over time. There's just there's hundreds of yeah. them, and it's it's just it, it's great. it really is wonderful. And oh, and then too that's the next thing,
1: the dark humor of this film. It, some of it is just so funny, and that that sequence where we go underwater is really funny. There's this other one where. We're learning about JFK's assassination on TV and they're like, we'll be right back for more. And it's this like, and then it's followed by this little cheeky coffee commercial. And it's just, I don't know. it's hard to explain how well he does all of this. And it's just, it feels like he's, he's not even trying almost. I mean, it's just, it's, it's so wonderful. That sounds bad, but he just, he does it so effortlessly. And then I also like the touch where, uh, He consistently, he'll pause the picture and he'll add, uh, text of how individuals died. So he'll show somebody and then he'll show how they died. And, you know, he does this, I don't know, maybe half a dozen times, maybe more. And there's like one person, one person who dies of natural causes. The rest are just shot up. And, and, you know, you think about this life and you're like, why would someone go into this life and they're like, okay, I, I'm going to be the one who's on top and dies of old age, right? They're thinking this, but it just rarely happens. And even when it does with De Niro's character, uh, you see what that looks like. I mean, it's just a superb way to tell the story.
0: I'm really glad you brought up those those intertitles where, uh, you know, he'll he'll freeze frame on one of the gangsters and then he'll flash up, you know, like – the date they died and how they died and usually it's it's something horrible and they die too young and it's funny because the first time it happens it is kind of it, it, it's a joke like you know I, it, it, those flashed up on screen i laughed the people who were watching it with me in the theater they laughed but something happened over the course of the film as the film went on and on and that kept happening the the laughs kind of slowly dropped away and became less boisterous, and by the by the end of the film, when when that was kind of stuff was happening, it was like the laughs were sticking in everyone's throats. It wasn't really funny anymore, and I think that that again is Scorsese bringing us along with Frank Sheeran. On his journey is that at first, you know, it is sort of something he just kind of, you know, he kills people and doesn't think about it. By the time he and we have reached the end of the film, it's not really, it's not just this weightless thing that we can shrug off anymore. It's there and it's clear and present. And it's because Sheeran himself is facing down the specter of death. And now he realizes the the almost existential terror he's feeling that's something that he inflicted on other people. It's a deeply serious moment and Scorsese gets there with at what at first seems like just kind of a, a fun <laughs> little little yeah. joke and arrives at that place later on. It's it's really Yeah, funny. no, and
1: and yeah, I mean just it's really wonderful. Uh, I want to talk about the religious aspects of this movie because uh, you know there are references uh, in the film to Christianity. Uh, to church, we see these characters going to church for, for baptisms and, and weddings. Uh, but towards the end of the movie, this film becomes very religious and it just surprised me a great deal. I, I've written and we've talked about Scorsese's, uh, approach to Catholicism, but we get to really see this. I mean, it, it's, it's just so, uh, yeah, so interesting. And we don't want to give into spoilers, but We get the sense that a number of these characters are attached to some of the rituals inside of the church, but it's more cultural and less personal. And as a result, they don't feel that divine presence that maybe they they should. What do you think about all of these references to Catholicism and to Christianity and to forgiveness and repentance and confession? How do you think that plays into this story?
0: Oh man, okay, I am really excited to dig into this with you because I th- I think this is really where you you mentioned that this is a very rich film. I think from a religious perspective, that richness really comes through here. One thing that really popped out at me, not just in the in the end of the picture where it becomes much more overt, but throughout the film, um Frank Sheeran and Russell Bufalino, Joe Pesci's character have kind of this this habit or this ritual where they get together and they have you know cups of wine and they have bread and they just tear off the bread and they dip it in the wine and you know they eat it and that's sort of like this this meal that they share together. It's very much uh, an echo of the Eucharist, the the practice of taking your bread and in I think it's called in tincture. You you, you dip it in the wine and you eat it and that's that is taking communion. But for them, it's not associated with the church, except maybe in the most nominal sense. It's much more they're essentially breaking bread together, having communion together, uh in, in almost this this perversion of the church, where they're they're not they're not part of this greater body of believers who are you know working to bring the kingdom of God to earth. They're working, they're out for themselves. They're essentially worshiping at the church of themselves. And that's what that is is all about, and then when they they begin to get a little bit closer to death, that's when Scorsese tips his hand and really, you know, says there's there's not sort of this need for them to suffer in this life. I mean, there is various characters do face earthly justice. They go to prison. Uh, they they get killed uh, by either the justice system or by uh, rival gangsters um, some of them though they they kind of get away with it with with for all intents and purposes they don't there's no real horrible punishment that is meted out to these murderers and yet we watch de niro kind of wilting away in that in that nursing home and he's unable even to confess his sins to a priest, because the the same code of silence that leads him not to snitch on any of uh, on any conspirators also prevents him from coming before God and confessing what he's done wrong, and because he can't do that, he can't receive forgiveness, and it's almost like a hell before he even dies. It's it's sobering and very Catholic and just utterly morally severe. It's. It's very bracing especially coming from uh, somebody who made The Goodfellas. It, it, this
1: is one of those movies where when it ended it just inspired a great deal of reflection and, and an emotional response in for me. I just kind of surprised by all of that. Uh, yeah, it's this it's this theme of self-preservation and ego. And we almost see religion in this film as an act not of succumbing to our creator, but an act of preserving ourself. And Robert De Niro, his character at one point, is, is talking about death and, and how he believes it can't be final. It can't be final. And as Christians, we believe that it isn't final, that there is this... Uh, Eternity is set in our hearts, and we believe our soul is eternal. But for his character, we begin to see that this type of, oh, it's not final, isn't about, hey, we are made in the image of God, and we experience his resurrection. But it's him wanting to be like God. And that is a theme that we see throughout many of Scorsese's pictures. Characters who take on this divine mantle and we see, we see Frank doing the same thing. I also, uh, I, I think it's important to note, uh, Anna Paquin's character. She plays Frank's daughter and she doesn't speak hardly at all throughout this film. She just watches and we see her when she's a young girl and then we see her grown up, played by Anna uh, Paquin, and she has this uh this judge of character. She seems to be this this moral voice, possess this moral vision, and she's very standoffish to Joe Pesci's character. And I've noticed a number of people who compare her to. The eye of God, as someone who sees through the facades, who sees through the veils, and who sees the sin in our own life—even sins that we don't see ourselves—and I think that's a great take. And I think her character works in that way. It's—it's it's not Scorsese attempting to silence her, but he's—he's he's giving her this uh, this spiritual vision, and I, I think it's pretty effective for what this film is trying to get at in terms of Frank's spirituality and his religious devotion.
0: So much of her character is essentially about the act of witness. The idea that even if uh, Frank Sheeran and Russell Buffalino and all the rest refuse to acknowledge their sins, refuse to talk about them, use euphemisms to talk around them. I hear you paint houses, you know, that's, that's all a device for them to really avoid having to face up to what they've done. And they, there, there's almost this sense that if they just don't actually name what they've done, and if they kind of just try to put it out of their mind and look the other way, then nobody else sees, nobody else knows. And, they can keep their guilt at bay. Anna Paquin's character gives the lie to all that. She is there throughout Frank Sheeran's life, and she watches him go out the door carrying a paper sack full of guns. She watches him uh, essentially plotting with another character to kill somebody. And she doesn't... You know, she doesn't deliver a righteous harangue against him. She never. There's never really this big scene for her in this film where Scorsese gives her the condemnation that we as the audience kind of want her to mete out. Because she doesn't have to. <laughs> it, 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 her being in contrast to the spluttering of Frank Sheeran as he tries to comfort uh, somebody's widow is just... The The contrast couldn't be clearer, and it's all the more powerful for it. And it, like you said, kind of suggests that there's somebody else who sees all the evil that's done under the sun, and he's the righteous judge. And that's something that Frank Sheeran, by the end of the movie, you kind of sense that he knows that, which is why he... he pleads with a priest at one point you know is is there a way for me to confess that's not quite so final like i can be dead but it's not so final cuz he's afraid of that judgment but he can't because he can't confess he can't receive god's mercy and it's just it, it's just utterly tragic and it's it's wonderful that scorsese has the kind of perspective to draw that out uh, in, in such a way that's so morally severe and uncompromising, but also in in a way kind of beautiful because you know that forgiveness would be possible for Frank Sharon if he could just say what he's done and admit it and confess it, and ask for forgiveness.
1: I think, as Chris says, you know, people say, like, oh, you know, he's kind of gro- going back to the whale over and over in this organized crime world. I think he tells these stories because this world is a magnification. For the darkness in our world. And so when he tells these stories, he's telling the story of human nature. Of human nature gone to this very, very dark place. And in that same sense, we struggle with confession. And we struggle with ego. And we struggle with pride. And and all of us, too. Have a limited amount of time, you know. In the in the background of one scene, as these characters are kind of growing old, we see on this theater marquee uh, the shootest John Wayne's last movie. Even the largest heroes pass away. At one point, there's a nurse, and she doesn't know who Jimmy Hoffa is or uh, was, and uh, he was one of the most famous people in America at the time. And and that's that's what happens. That's what happens to us all I do want to mention before we move on Joe Pesci he is phenomenal in this film just this sort of uh, get things done kind of guy who doesn't get riled up uh, all too much Al Pacino is wonderful I mean the performances here are fantastic I think for me the only thing that keeps this movie from being a perfect film is some of the uh, CGI age work. And so, Martin Scorsese used technology to make these actors look younger. I actually think that it works very well with Al Pacino. Very well with Joe Pesci. It works very well with everyone, with the exception of Robert De Niro, there are some scenes where it is very effective, and then there are some scenes that are pretty distracting. And then this has been mentioned a lot. You get some of these older characters, uh, older actors, who are playing younger characters, and they're asked to do more physical stuff. And that doesn't always work right, and we get some kind of strange edits at time. For me, that that's the only negative feeling uh, that I have towards this movie. And I even think, though, I do think, there are times... When we look back at these characters and and there's this almost kind of glimpse – memory is a big thing here. Almost this glimpse of of these characters, Robert De Niro especially, is he's remembering the past. And so he's remembering his younger self by basically uh, de-aging his present self. And so we get this almost meta quality to that CGI work. And so some of it I think works really well and some of it can be a little distracting.
0: Yeah, I mean the the CGI de aging didn't didn't to be honest didn't bother me all that much. It was a little bit odd the f- in the very first scene where it's used when Frank Sharon is still a truck driver. That was kind of it was jarring. Uh, I got used to it enough over the the course of the film that it stopped bothering me. I do think that there are a, a couple of scenes where the um, the fact that De Niro is, is getting older and can't beat people down the way he used to be able to in a Scorsese film. Those are a little bit more glaringly, glaringly obvious and might be slight bum notes. But in a film that's manifestly not about really delivering spectacular, you know, cin- dazzling cinematic fights or anything like that, it seems almost churlish to complain about... That kind of stuff, especially when you have such a mature, elegiac look at the shape of a life utterly wasted in the committing of evil. It's, it's, it's not about the 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 youthfulness of of De Niro and these characters. It's about how they see themselves back then, and I think that's what makes the the film really
1: special. Yeah, no, that definitely, listeners. The Irishman is now streaming on Netflix for everyone who has a Netflix account. Uh, to see, make sure to check it out. If you do, we would love to hear your thoughts. There's so many things to talk about with this film, and we probably could have gone on longer if we wanted to. Uh, but we'd love to get your thoughts so we can continue that dialogue, maybe in a future episode. Make sure to tweet us your thoughts at SeeBelievePod at SeeBelievePod. You can also email us Seeing and Believing, CAPC at gmail.com. Don't go anywhere. We're going to be reviewing Trey Edward Schultz's new film, Waves, here in just a bit.
2: I'm not cold now. I'm stuck in L.A. It's never cold here in the U.S.A. There are so many, so many sunny days I'm beginning to miss the English gray. I came here for my dreams, isn't that the story? I gave them all my heart and that it comes without glory And now I'm stuck on clubs, stuck on the drug. I think you've got
1: worries that. that song is The English Gray by Sophie Asia. You know, Kevin, we really appreciate everyone who takes an opportunity to support us through Patreon. It really keeps the podcast going, and it's very easy. We have a number of levels, a number of donation levels, and we say this every week, but our favorite one really is the what can you buy for $5 level. It's... And it's really an exciting place to be. I mean, that's all I can say about it. It's an exciting place to be. And it elicits the question, Kevin, it provokes the question. What can you buy? What can you buy for five bucks?
0: You, I, I have to wonder if it, if it elicits or if it provokes the question, because those are two very different verbs. Mm. But uh, either way, $5 would get you a Ray Romano action figure, you know, with one of those little pull strings like on Woody from Toy Story, where he spouts... You know, one of one of his catchphrases. I, I'm not really familiar with a lot of Ray Romano's work other than uh what I've seen recently in The Big Sick and The Irishman, but I'm sure you can grab a couple of lines of dialogue from from those films and stick it in the action figure's mouth. Be great. Yeah, I mean everybody loves
1: Raymond is such it's I mean it's I've only watched a couple episodes, but it's a big deal. So I'm sure uh-huh. there's a ton of catchphrases. And you think about it. $5 is pretty cheap for that type of action figure because that's got to take <laughs> a lot of custom molding and you got to hire him to record the dialogue.
0: And he, d- he does not come cheap. Ray yeah, Romano right. is not cheap. <laughs> he doesn't. And his star is rising. You know, he's, he was in a Scorsese film. He's come a long way since Everybody Loves Raymond, which is a sitcom that, I kind of stopped watching after a little while because it just stressed me out too much. Everybody loves Raymond more like everybody loves Ray Romano now,
1: even Martin Scorsese. So, uh, put that <laughs> on a business card, Ray Romano. <laughs> or you could become a donor to our Patreon campaign instead of getting that action figure. You could become a $5 donor. We would very much appreciate it. Just go to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast.
0: Yeah. And you may have you listeners may have noticed that we are trying something new with ads on the on the podcast. So thank you for uh bearing with us through those. We're we're giving it a try We're seeing how it works. But if you feel like, you know what, they're doing ads on their program, they're doing okay. I'd rather give my five dollars to somewhere else the com members program is also a really great place to do that. Not only do you help support various things like the Capca Podcast Network, but you also help support the writers for the site and the great articles they produce. We had one that went up uh, just recently, Wade. About holiday rom-coms. It's written by staff writer Elizabeth Garn. It's titled "The Advent of Holiday Rom-Coms," and she basically goes all in on talking about you know rom-com formulas, the the fact that so many of them are set at Christmas, and really unpacks why. We like watching them, why they're so popular, and the meaning that we can draw from them. So it's a good read. I recommend you checking it out. And that's the sort of thing that you help support if you become a member. You also get free stuff and access to our members forum on Facebook if that's the route you want to go. So seems like a pretty good deal. Yeah, and the cover photo
1: for that article is a still from the film Last Christmas. It's the new film from Paul Feig. And I had a chance to see it. So my wife wanted to see it, Kevin. And during the Thanksgiving break, we saw it. And it's got some faults. But I don't know. I kind of enjoyed it. And th- there's this, um, this hopeful kind of strand, a selfless kind of strand that weaves its way to the very end. And I enjoyed that. And I also, uh, I actually thought, that Amelia Clark did very, very well in the movie. Uh, she's very charming, and um, yeah, there's a lot of good things to like about the movie. If it is a little frustrating and dare I say cheesy at times, I'm not sure if anybody has ever used the word cheesy for a holiday rom com. I'm going to be the first one to do that. But oh there we yeah, go.
0: I'm 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 sure that you are the first one to plant your flag in that particular <laughs> rhetorical soil. Um, but It'll catch on, I'm sure.
1: Yeah. Well, if anybody wanted to hear what I thought about last Christmas, I'm not sure if they do or not. Uh I just, there it is. It's out there and we can kind of go from there.
0: Yeah, well, uh, if you have seen Last Christmas and want to maybe rhetorically spar with Wade on your own descriptions of what it was like, or if you want to let us know your thoughts on the Irishman or anything else we discuss on the show, you can, of course, tweet or email us. We love to hear from you. We can go right now. We can go. Well, we can go right now. That's what's up. You think you can take the old man? Come on. What's up.
2: Did you start? What a difference a day made.
1: I'm trying to give you the tools to succeed in this world.
2: 24 little hours.
1: Everything I do is for y'all. And stop.
2: We are not afforded the luxury of being average. What a difference. I'm the one who's trying to hold this family together. Come, come on! You pushed him! What a difference. I'm sorry. i was stop. Day. And the difference is you.
0: Well, we're back with the last segment of our show. And just like the Irishman, Wade, this is the part of the of the show where we are going to look back on our lives and contemplate our own mortality and the evanescence of human existence. <laughs> I do
1: that every single segment of every episode, Kevin. Just so you know.
0: <laughs> so so whenever I've been discussing movies with you the entire time, you've been sitting there like with this internal monologue going like, I'm gonna die one day. Memento Mori, what have I done? There's so much I regret that that's just a constant internal monologue for you yeah yeah and then i'm like oh oh, yeah so you know aladdin (laughs) aladdin um i'm not a huge
1: fan
0: (laughs) oh man i i I, man now that i know that i'm going to be a little bit nicer to you know every time we disagree you know maybe i should take a step back and go you know wade is going through a lot right now in his (laughs) inner life maybe i should just uh Use some kid gloves here it is. It's, in this
1: discussion. Here it is. just
0: during the episode. And
1: then when I'm done with the episode, I'm like, oh, wow, that was great. You know, it's great to reflect on life and to just put <laughs> things in perspective. I'm glad I can do that every week.
0: Yeah, well, I, I guess I'm glad to hear that it is at least somewhat refreshing for you. <laughs> uh, we're actually going to talk about another movie. So we'll, we'll save the heavy stuff for another time. The movie we're talking about here in this segment is, of course, Trey Edward Schultz's new film, Waves. Set against the vibrant landscape of South Florida and featuring a star-studded cast with Sterling K. Brown, Renee Elise Goldsberry, Kelvin Harrison Jr., and the ubiquitous Lucas Hedges, Waves traces the emotional journey of a suburban African-American family led by a well-intentioned but domineering father as they navigate love, forgiveness, and coming together in the aftermath of a loss." Directed by Trey Edward Schultz of Cresha fame, Waves returns to the same themes in that film of family, regret, and healing, but takes a broader perspective on those things that is less August Osage County and more Manchester by the Sea. Wade, the question for you is, do you think that this latest exploration by Schultz of family themes works in Waves?
1: This is This is one of those movies that there there are there's a good amount i think that doesn't work with the film i think that schultz is bold here i think he takes a lot of chances and there are some amazing sequences there are some amazing aspects to the film there are also some pieces that just don't really work and well as we talk about the structure something helpful for the listeners to know is that the first half of the film is very different in tone to the second half. The first half follows Tyler's character played as you mentioned by Kelvin Harris Jr. Harrison Jr. and we see his life uh, essentially crumble before our eyes. Uh, the film is very energetic. It's it's moving, it's it's jumping around. We we are not just introduced to the story, but it's almost as if we're living the story ourselves. And then the second half of the film changes focus a bit to Tyler's sister, Emily. And it's, it's more somber. It's slower. It's, it's a little bit patient. And I don't know if that works like Schultz really wanted it to work, but I will say this. I, I, I felt like this film was almost this sort of sledgehammer to the chest. Especially as I'm watching it, but even more so afterwards and just the rest of the day, I almost felt like there was this weight on my, on my shoulders as I'm thinking about this family. It just, it feels so visceral and so real at times. And so it's an imperfect film. It's a film that probably works as well as it. it doesn't work at times, but I don't know. There's really something to this, this project. And it's, it's nice to see Schultz as he begins to kind of move in different directions. Uh, as he, this is his, what is his third.
0: Yeah. That, that bifurcated structure that, that you mentioned, the fact that kind of the first half of the film is from the perspective of Kelvin Harrison Jr.'s character. And the second half is from the perspective of his sister. Is That's a gambit that's going to be really divisive. It's, it's one that some people are going to find really allows them to enter into the life of this family and sort of experience their story from multiple perspectives, not just a single protagonist's perspective. And it's going to work for them. For others, it's it's going to make the film feel a little bit lumpy. And I mean, tipping my cards here, that's kind of how I felt about it as well. There is just, it's an odd choice. It's an odd structural choice such that it's obviously on purpose. This isn't Schultz being, you know, not knowing how to structure a film. This isn't Schultz being undisciplined necessarily. It's more that he's, trying to create this this world and bring us into these characters lives in a very specific way and some parts of it like you said do work i think overall it ends up kind of collapsing under its own weight in the end the pacing i i just don't think quite works the way schultz wants it to because For the first half, we are so confined to the headspace of the young son in this film that when we leave that headspace and then spend, you know, another hour or so in the perspective of another character, it almost feels like all of that first half kind of drops off the radar and it's not forgotten because the events that happened in that first half have very strong ripple effects in the second half, but that character just completely falls away almost, which is unfortunate because I think the film's strongest moments do come in that first half. Schultz has this absolutely euphoric first 15 minutes where he kind of takes us through the, the, the busy life of, of the son. You know, he's, he's into sports. He, he loves his family. He loves his girlfriend. And combined with Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross's score, it's just, it's, it's wonderful. It's, I, I was kind of really high off of that first 15 minutes for a while. And the film kind of lost it the longer it went on. And I think part of it is that Schultz, who, who who's the co-editor on this film, he helped edit this film. I do feel like there was a, a little bit of a problem with him not really wanting to lose these really finely observed character scenes and he left them all in but that kind of does lead to a situation where no one moment really lands with the weight he wants it to because it's sort of dragged down by the sheer profusion of incidents that he has in the rest of the film.
1: Yeah, and I think too it's it's very difficult to so this is about 2 hours and 15 minutes long and I think it's just over an hour, that first section with, with Tyler. It's, it's difficult to watch this character go through the grinder for that long. And the film primarily being from his perspective, primarily being about him. His sister is a side character. She's not in the film that much in the first hour, hour and five minutes. And then he, he's gone. We're so invested in him, we just watched his life kind of flip upside down, and then the film transitions away from him and that makes it pretty difficult i am glad you pointed out the first you know fifteen minutes or so we We get this really great opening shot where two characters are in a car, and the camera is just kind of spinning around in circles in that car and it there's just so much energy there. And I, I wish I remembered who wrote this, but somebody said that Trey Edward Schultz just might be Terrence Malick for Generation Z. And when I talked to Trey Edward Schultz, uh, we discussed him working a little bit with, with Malick and shooting some footage for him. And we definitely get some of those sensibilities here. And I think he does a fantastic job of making that his own. And... The beginning of the film, we get dolly shots, we get pans as he's working out, as he is, like you mentioned, hanging out with his friends. And we just get caught up in this lifestyle, and it slowly starts to deteriorate. And I, there's something about the pacing, too, I think, that does work. And I mentioned, as we were talking about The Irishman, that it's one of those movies where time just kind of passes by and you almost lose track of it. This is one of those movies in waves where so many things are happening at once. Uh, this character is facing an injury. He's got issues with his girlfriend, issues with his father, his family. It's all kind of happening at once. And he gets to the point where he's not really thinking it through. He's being driven by his, by his passions, by his anger, by his emotion. And the film really does exhibit that through the technical qualities of the movie. I mean, things are happening quick. Things are moving very, very fast. The camera, the edits, the cuts. And then when we get this switch, and we also have this this aspect ratio switch. It, it cuts to kind of an Academy uh, aspect ratio to kind of focus our vision. Everything slows down, and it seems to suggest That sometimes life moves so fast for us, if we're not paying attention, we won't contemplate where we're, what we're doing or where we're headed. And we, we don't think, and then something happens and all we can do is think. And that's where grief sets in. And so we've got kind of these qualities, but it is going to be a mixed bag for a lot of people. And it is for me, seeing that jump to the other character and kind of seeing this huge setup. And then the story almost wants to be told in the back end, the story of love coming out of its shell, the story of learning to turn from tragedy and difficulty. And it, it, it's just kind of tough when the film is structured in that way.
0: Yeah, and there's this sense as the film goes on that all of these these uh, stylistic tools that, that Trey Edward Schultz whips out to bring to bear on the story, it... it at some points feels not quite like he's fully in control of why he's, using them other than for their own sake. You mentioned the aspect ratio changes, which is always something that makes you sit up and take notice when, when you see it in a film, particularly in a movie theater where, you know, that's, that's a very big shift to go from the traditional widescreen, uh, aspect ratio to the, the, the academy ratio. You know, that's a lot of black, black space on the left and right that is suddenly there. And you have to reckon with that. And that's something that Schultz's being very intentional with, obviously, the fact that we have to reckon with these characters' choices and the repercussions of their mistakes in the same—in a similar way that they do. And that's—you you understand why he's doing that, but— there's such a profusion, I guess, of these stylistic tricks he pulls out that it's, it's a little bit distracting, I guess, from what is a very compelling drama at the core of the story. It's something that, uh, Sterling K. Brown's father character mentions in conversation with Tyler. He says, you know, I push you a lot, but that's because we, meaning African Americans, we have to be twice as good to be thought of as, as good as the rest. And that pressure is really what drives the first half of the film. Tyler pushes himself so hard and begins to make some really bad choices because he's cracking under that pressure. And it kind of brings to the fore this this conflict where the, the reasoning behind Tyler's father being so adamant about achievement is understandable and and very real, but it also bumps up against this immovable object Of Tyler not really being able to handle that kind of pressure and his sister not being able to handle the kinds of pressures that she faces, or at least not being able to handle all of them. But the differing ways that they meet that kind of pressure is really what Schultz is interested in. And that has a tendency to recede into the background a little bit when he's kind of throwing everything in his toolkit at the screen, hoping some of it sticks. I guess I found myself wishing that a tighter, less flashy film might have been more powerful in the end.
1: Yeah, and I think, too, some of the powerful moments come in just little interactions. And so towards the beginning of the movie, uh, Sterling K. Brown, who's really great, he's just fantastic in this movie, and some people have talked about him getting Nominated as a supporting actor for this role, and I think he should because I think it's I think it's great. He's interacting with Tyler, and we I don't know I just think he's a great father figure here. He's someone who is he's hard on his son, and he's competing with his son. So they're like lifting weights, and it's almost this competition between father and son. This fascinating dynamic. In addition to him. Actually, not being a bad father, he just has some faults, and that's, to me, uh, much harder to do to create a character like that who who you know we do uh, think needs to change, but we don't look down on them than just creating a father figure who's just absolutely horrible, uh, absolutely terrible. And I think he does a good job. and so some of those character moments really work, but he also has a chance to shine a little more. In the second half of the film, when he has these kind of conversations about life and where he's struggling to get some of those words out, and um, and I think that's that's when the movie itself kind of kind of shines more too. There's definitely the aspect of, of fatherhood in this movie. We have Lucas Hedges, who for the first half of the movie I thought he was he was going to get Terrence Malick. Like I didn't know he was going to be in the movie. I was like, well, he's in the background. Like maybe they edited him out. Uh, but he does get his chance to shine, and he has some powerful moments as we look at his relationship with his father, and there's some really good moments. It's just hard because I'll watch this movie and I'll say, oh wow, that scene was just incredible. That section was just great, but it didn't always add up the way that I thought it should. Uh, I will say this. It is, it is uh, worth exploring when we think about the religious aspect and the Christian aspect of this movie. Uh, Schultz is 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 he doesn't call himself a Christian? I, I think we mentioned some of those themes whenever I talked to him uh, previously about Croatia, but his stepdad was a preacher, and so we get some scenes in church here. And the idea of love, the theme of love, kind of overcoming deep obstacles is probably the crux of this movie. We get some quotes from First Corinthians thirteen. We get characters singing, listening to music, how great is our God. And there seems to be this aspect of maybe there's a love that transcends what we think is possible. Maybe there's something kind of deeper going on. And so we get that kind of all mixed up in here. And thats I think that that's worth exploring as well and kind of worth exploring as we think about these characters and some of the choices and the changes that they make and, and hope to make across this film.
0: One thing I appreciated about those church scenes that you mentioned is how Schultz does set up the the ethos that is that comes through in the in the sermons that we witness in those church scenes and the worship that we witness. How it's set up almost in opposition to the sort of striving pull yourself up by your bootstraps ethos that Tyler's father and Tyler's school kind of tends to preach at him uh throughout the first half of the film there's you know this he's in English class and of course they're talking about I think the great gatsby and of course there's that that famous observation that the teacher even says no second chances no second act. And that's echoed a little bit by by Tyler's father with his talk about how, you know, he ha- you have to strive and strive because that's the only way for a black man to be thought of as a white person's equal. And that's contrasted with the acceptance and love to be found in these church services. It's not something that Schultz really puts a big red button on necessarily, but it is there and it does suggest through Emily's story in the second half of the film, that there is another way than just striving and, you know, either succeeding through your own blood, sweat, and tears, or being broken by that effort. There's another way. And Schultz does have uh, an element of hope in, in presenting that to us, which I did appreciate, even if I didn't think that structurally overall the film completely worked. Yeah, and I think too. The aspect, it, this
1: could be a, a visceral film at times. And and this is a film, too, that that is also about bodies, in a sense. And that visceral nature kind of works its way into the body and how the body can be injured or hurt uh, when Tyler has an injury and he's trying to push through it. I It was almost as if I could feel that injury. The filmmaking there, I, I think, was just kind of wonderful. And then we get this... Abortion sequence where uh, one character is considering a, an abortion and we see some protesters outside and they say some horrible things, some racist things to these characters. And yet, this character, as she drives away, uh, is contemplating whether she should have an abortion or not. And she uses that phrase, "It it is my body. And when Another character, I'm trying to be a little vague so I don't give anything away, tries to tell her to do it. And she says, you know, it is my body. And th- there seems to suggest that there's, there are consequences that are just outside of this. Well, it's, it's not a big deal that there are physical kind of consequences all around us. And, and I, and I'm pro-life and I think I'm not sure the film comes down either way, but it seems to suggest like as we move throughout life, physicality plays a large part in what we do. And we have to take that into account the way that our body moves and the way that our body reacts, reacts. And that is, you know, important. And so there's that aspect of the movie too. And I think part of that is, is maybe why I walked away with this kind of weight on my shoulders for the rest of the day. And so while there are aspects of this movie that that I think are, of course need to be tweaked, um, there is something powerful about this and I I'm real you know, I'm still very excited to see what Schultz comes up with next. I think he's definitely a young filmmaker to watch.
0: Yeah, there is this sense that all of the characters that we see in Waves have they're they're their own people and they have their own internal universes and those internal lives manifest themselves outwardly uh, toward other people in Myriad ways there in so many different ways, both good and bad. And that's suggested by, by the abortion secrecy mission mentioned where, you know, the, there are these two um, characters these two, two young characters who are in opposition to each other about whether the abortion should go forward in the first place. But there's another person involved there as well. Uh, similarly, we get a lot of, well, we don't get a lot, but we get a glimpse of the marriage dynamics between Sterling Kane Brown and uh, Renee Elise Goldsberry, um, and and kind of the tensions that are present in their marriage, both uh, before and after, kind of the big incident that comes halfway through the film. And even though they're they're supporting characters, and we don't spend as much time with them as we do with the the teenagers, Schultz still wants us to see those moments and and to really sit with them for a little bit. And I appreciate that impulse. It does get away from him a little bit in this film, but it's good that this film is out there. I'm glad that he made it and I'm looking forward to seeing what he makes next.
1: And, and like I mentioned, when we first started this conversation about the film, there is this kind of boldness too. It's like, hey, you know, I'm going to make these risky choices and there are a number of them that don't pay off, but I, I do appreciate that, that risk. Listeners, that is our review of Waves. It is opening wide this weekend. So if you watch the film, make sure to contact us. Let us know your thoughts. Once again, that's at C Belief Pod, at C Belief P O D, or seeing and believing CAPC at gmail.com. This is the end of the show, the part of the show where we take an opportunity to recommend something from the world of television and or film to our listeners. Kevin, what would you like to recommend this week?
0: Well, as long as we're on the uh, killers looking back on their lives and regretting their choices train I figure my recommendation will be something else kind of from that same world it's uh the HBO TV series Barry which was created by Bill Hader it stars him as well he does a lot of writing and directing on the show as well the basic premise of the show is that Barry is a former marine who has some some baggage from his Tour of duty in Afghanistan, and he kind of becomes a hitman almost by accident uh, once he returns stateside and leaves the military. And the entire show is about him wanting to quit the hitman lifestyle. He wants to stop killing people and become an actor instead, and he can't quite seem to free himself from his past as a killer it's a really funny show a very dark humored show um but it's also got the same sort of moral vision that i really appreciate from say vince gilligan's work and i think those two elements together make it something really fresh and unlike anything else i've ever seen so i've only just started it i haven't seen the latest season that i think just aired this year but I'm looking forward to getting around to it, and I hope our listeners do too.
1: Yeah, I've been wanting to start the show for a long time. I just haven't yet. There, there, I mean, there's a couple of them. I I just started uh, Watchmen, and and I'm tr- I want to get to Barry because yeah, that just sounds like it's right up my alley. I like Bill Hader a lot. I was wondering when he left SNL what he would do and if if he would find success. And I I think he has. And uh, yeah, I just are really excited about watching Barry he, when, I, when I have the time.
0: He's really good in the role. It's, I don't know, I, I don't want to give away too much because part of the fun is just watching him be in this character. He's a, a very good actor, I think. And the directing on the show is also really good. Lots of uh, visual touches and uh, visual jokes that just, take it above and beyond just your average high concept comedy. So it's really good. Yeah.
1: Well, I'm excited about that. And I think Henry Winkler is in it as he well.
0: Is. Isn't he? And okay. he is tremendous as well.
1: <laughs> yes. I love him. I think he's uh, I think he's great. Well, my recommendation this week is not anything too revolutionary, but I was thinking about Martin Scorsese. I was thinking about uh, some of the films I like from him that I haven't really talked about very often, and then something that would feel a little uh, Christmassy, and so I'm going to recommend his 2011 uh, children's film called Hugo. It's a fantastic, fantastical story uh, that involves a young boy trying to solve a mystery regarding his late father. As I mentioned, fantasy, but there's also this, um, this sort of subplot that involves film preservation, which Martin Scorsese is very much involved in, and it's just a nice fun family picture and it's it's great to see someone like Scorsese um put aside some of the violence for a little while the coarse language and make a really good pretty good uh Kids' picture. I say kids picture. It's something I think a number of people, adults included, will enjoy. So that's my recommendation this week. I think it'll be a good holiday movie for some people out there. It's uh, Hugo.
0: It's also a good holiday movie, uh, sneakily so, and I can't really say how, but it's a good holiday movie for cinephiles. Martin Scorsese is really famously this guy who just loves older films and does a lot of work to preserve the classics, especially from the silent era. And Hugo finds a way to incorporate that enthusiasm into it. Let's just say that. So uh, yeah, good for that group of people as well. Well, listeners, that
1: is the end of our show. I, I don't know if we'll announce it just yet, but we have a pretty stellar lineup planned as of now for next week. So that's, that's cool. Too much anticipated pictures, so make sure to check that out. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. It's brought to you, as always, by our Patreon supporters – and Christandpopculture Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the Sacred On Screen. I'm Wade Bearden. My co-host is Kevin McLennathan. And until next time, this is Seeing and Believing.
2: You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at Christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.